0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ.
1: Uh, Let's get started. I'm going to open in prayer, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. God of all grace, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather and to reflect on who you are and what it means to know and be known by you. And so we take a moment, because so many of us have just had busy days, and we've been rushing here, maybe had a quick bite to eat out the door, Um, and so we just take a moment to breathe. And we pray that you would speak to us tonight. It's easy to get pretty wound up, and we're going to be talking about pretty important issues, and, and we do pray that you grant us your grace. We pray that you would guide our conversation tonight as we look at um, the relationship between you and, and your creation, men and women, and, and, um, and how this has played out in history even. And so we invite you to guide us and guide our conversation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, just as we get started, um, this is our, our second hard question, and the, the, the hard question tonight last week was, How can you say there's only one true faith? Uh, This week is, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Uh, Which I think is a very important question. And so there was a a survey just to get us started, and Marty's going to compile the results and take a look at it. Uh, But I just want to remind us a little bit of just some ground rules, right? Um, It's good to ask questions, of course, and we're glad. (laughs) In fact, I have a friend of mine. uh, We're going to be meeting up. won't say the person's name but they said I have questions and I have more questions and I got like two pages of questions and they're awesome questions just about life and faith and and I get a lot of those emails from many of you and I love the fact that people ask questions as Christians we are not to be afraid of tough questions if Jesus is the author of life he can deal with hard questions right um and so keep them coming um I'm not may not have always the answer you're looking for, but that's okay, Marty does, okay? <laughs> um, and so that's why in your notes, she originally had the notes that said, keep your questions coming, email david at chr, I said, no, 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 you put your email on there, so Marty's name's on there too, so you can email her. Um, all the other thing I wanted to say too is um, <laughs> just when uh in person when you're asking a question and i understand sometimes when you're asking a question you're formulating it in your mind it may take a, a little bit that's okay but as much as possible try to keep your question succinct and the reason why i say that is because those online can't hear it. and so and so the person who's speaking wants to hear the questions relay it to those online and that way we all know what the what the question is that, that, that's being discussed. So if you're asking a question, keep it succinct. If you have, let's say, a longer comment you wanna make about whatever has to do, I mean, that's okay, but maybe save those comments afterwards of uh, one-on-one conversation. That way we can get through as many of the questions as possible, okay? And the last thing is is uh, my, my dear cyber friends, uh, to make sure in your conversations, in the chat line, that we stick to the topic on hand and I know the dangers of chat because you can talk about lots of things, but let's keep to the topic on hand. And um, and this is for everyone. We are to be charitable to one another. We're to be kind to one another. We can disagree with one another. That's fine. There are people who are coming to this class who are local, but there are also people from right across Canada coming to this class as far away as on the farthest reaches of Ontario to deepest, darkest, Alberta. So, um, you know, it's right across this country and there are people who are coming to this class who don't even know about Jesus or or have some genuine questions about faith. And so let's not assume that everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're all coming from all different walks. So just be sensitive to that, especially in the chat um recognizing that people are coming from different backgrounds does that make sense yes. all right all in favor aye. Aye. and the eyes are above the nose yes the eyes are above the nose okay aye aye very good all right well without further ado i'm going to hand things over tonight uh to my dear colleague and dear friend marty Dolphel smith um she's going to be leading most of this i'm going to probably do one, one small section but uh, marty's going to lead us in tonight's hard question doesn't Christianity denigrate women? So let's welcome Marty. You guys know Marty is like our executive pastor and leader and extraordinary person. You guys all know that, right? Yeah. Okay. Good. Welcome.
0: It's <laughs> so, so good, and uh, oh, there's. It's great to. Uh, talk to different different people here before we started. I heard last week there was a, some people had a hard time hearing. So if you're in the in the crowd and you can't hear me just put up your hand because i can always talk louder (laughs) i uh i grew up my dad is italian and my italian side is very loud and i married a very quiet man and so he was just ashamed in the neighborhood when i'd go out and find my kids hey come home and it was too loud for him so the um so let's before i start i thank you guys for filling out the survey and i'm going to see if i can share the screen and find out the amazing results of the survey that we've got hopefully you guys can see that so the question is does christianity denigrate women and so in this room and online 62.5 percent of people gave an emphatic no but there were 37 so a third of us say that in some ways it does and in some ways it doesn't so that tells you coming in we're not all going to agree and so again david's reminder to be charitable when we i asked you my, why might some people think or you think that Christianity denigrates women we have three people felt like history demonstrates that and we will be addressing history in a little bit Um, Some of you felt that the Bible teaches that men are superior uh, to women, or the Bible is patriarchal. Some of you felt the church limits the participation of women. And some of you answered that the Christian God is male, and then some others. And I noticed a lot more people answered the first question than the second question, um, but we'll see how that goes. So we're going to address most of these issues tonight. Okay, so I am going to now share another screen this is my testing my technical skills tonight there we are yeah it is okay so maybe in the future we'll try and get a mic set up so our, our question for tonight is does christianity denigrate women and i want to start out by okay. saying that some that christian teachers and leaders in the church have denigrated women. So we're going to acknowledge that, and I'm going to read you a few lovely quotes. So the first is a a Christian leader in the fourth century, a theologian. He said, for how can it be said of woman that she is the image of God? It's like, read the Bible, buddy. And then (laughs) secondly, Augustine, a well-known founder of the Western Church, said this, the woman herself alone is not the image of God, whereas the man alone is the image of God, as fully and completely as when the woman is joined with him. Again, most of us would not believe what Augustine said there was true. Then we have Thomas Aquinas, a, a Middle Ages church leader and thinker, As regards the individual nature, woman is defective and misbegotten." Thank you, Thomas. And Thomas was very much influenced by by Greek thinking, by Aristotle in particular. And that idea does not come from Christian thought, but it actually comes from Greek thought. And then finally you're like, well, those are old guys. Like people won't say things like this today, but for sure they will. And so here's a quote. This is um, based from a pastor in 2008 from Seattle, and he said this. He said, without blushing, and he's talking about 1 Timothy 2:12. Paul is simply stating that when it comes to leading in the church, women are unfit because they are more gullible and easier to deceive than men before you get all emotional like a woman in hearing this please consider the content of women's magazines at your local grocery store so again that's pretty derogatory to women i'd say that quote denigrates women and he was a very well-liked and well-known pastor who said that but I'm not including his name because I'm sure he's embarrassed about saying it now, or I hope he is. Maybe not. Um, but I thought maybe I should ask him to go look at the content of a men's magazine and see if there's uh, any problems with that. <laughs> so I don't know if any of you have heard statements like that. How many of you have heard in churches or in reading statements that you think denigrate women? So some of churches. you... In churches, yeah, or from Christians. So some of us have heard that for sure. Um, Some of us maybe have been blessed and never heard that, um, which would be great. But so today I want to say, what is our question? And we could frame the question this way. Do Christians denigrate women? And I think the answer would be yes, some Christians denigrate women. But I think a better question is um, this. Is there something inherent in Christianity that leads to the denigration or the mistreatment of women. So that's going to be our question today. Now some have looked at that question, and again, they've said, yes, there is. Um, And I'm, I'm going to talk about what I think in a few minutes, but I'm first going to look at people who say, yes, there is. So there's two definitions that I want to go over first. And the first one is misogyny. So misogyny is from two Greek words, miso meaning hatred, gynē meaning woman, and it really means the devaluation of women. And so do Christians devalue women is a question. And then patriarchy, which is a word that maybe makes some of your heart beats beat faster and you feel anxious. But patriarchy simply means a system that gives preference to men. So it's a system of relationships and beliefs and values that are embedded in political systems or religious systems, economic systems that structure gender inequality. So they prefer men and men get ahead in a way that women don't. So the next statement I'm going to read uses the term patriarchy. So you'll know what she's talking about when we read it. So this is written by Daphne Hanson. She's a professor emeritus of divinity school at St. Andrews she has studied Christianity and she believes that Christianity is patriarchal. So she says that Christianity is patriarchal is clearly the case. The long line of prophets, Jesus, who is central to the religion, the apostles, the leaders of the church throughout the history, throughout history to the present, have been almost without exception men. Women are related to them as wives, mothers, and companions. In the stories, and the parables of the new testament men perform what were in that society men's roles and women's roles god is conceived in patriarch oh and sorry i think i deleted something women women's roles god is conceived in patriarchal terms he is king lord judge and father all terms referring to male human beings in that society any exceptions to this are overwhelmingly patriarchal um The nature of the religion or, or or overwhelmingly patriarchal nature of the religion are trivial, so Daphne Hansen and many other feminist scholars would say Christianity denigrates women it 's inherently patriarchal we there 's nothing we can do about it so so i 'm before I talk about this next section, what we're gonna look at today, I just wanna tell you a little bit about what I think. So I, I, I don't come to you today in a defensive posture saying that Christianity never denigrates women. I come to you saying that I don't believe in its essence that Christianity denigrates women. I, but I have experienced misogyny In the church, I've experienced patriarchy in the church, and we're part of a denomination that struggles with this, that struggles to prefer men over women. And this has at times been uncomfortable for me, and sometimes it's been really hurtful for me. Um, and so since I've, I've come to faith, I came to faith when I was 15, I've been thinking about this issue. I've been reading about it. I've been studying. I've been praying. And I've been trying to understand how my experience with Jesus has been so positive. I've experienced so much love, forgiveness, acceptance, welcome from Jesus. And yet, I've, this has been how I've experienced very different treatment from some men. Now, I've also experienced the same love and welcome acceptance from Jesus as I have from some men. So my husband, he's an amazing man. David and I have worked together for 20 years. David has been so kind and welcoming to me. My former lead pastor who preached here a couple months ago, Mark Peters, and many other men have treated me with welcome and respect. Um, And so I have these two experiences. I have an experience of sometimes being mistreated, um, I was sexually harassed over a period of four years by my Christian boss when I was in my 20s. That was very devastating for me. I didn't expect it. I didn't expect a man my father's age to treat me like a sexual object, um, but he did. And, but I've also again experienced amazing men who've welcomed me and worked side by side with me. And so I'm going to say that if you're a woman here, you are likely to meet Christians with a patriarchal attitude you're likely to meet Christians with who are misogynistic, but you're just as likely to meet those people who aren't Christians in your workplaces or in your families. So again, this isn't necessarily a Christian problem. I think it's a cultural problem. And so I don't believe that Christianity teaches patriarchy, but patriarchy has influenced Christianity. And you can see that in those quotes by Aquinas and by Ambrosiaster and Um, by Augustine and then our pastor in Seattle. And and so I'm going to look at... So tonight I want to look at and explain to you why I do not think Christianity is patriarchal. Why don't I think Christianity teaches it or promotes systems that preference men? So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at church history and david's going to help me with that because he's a much more of a church historian than i am and then we're going to look at current issues where are we now how is the church doing now so my first question is the bible patriarchal and so i'm going to look at a few things but i'm going to start with the stories of creation and the stories of creation are very important stories in scripture they many Um, beliefs and the ways we live hang on God's intention for humanity. And so we're going to look briefly at Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it says that God created humanity, male and female, he created them. And um, so God created men and women. And then it goes on to say that he made men and women in his own image. So again, we see Augustine getting it wrong already. (laughs) Men and women together are in God's image. And this idea of the image looks at three ideas. So humans are in the image of God like a child is to a parent. So God is the creator. God made them and so they're like the one who made them. They're also in the image of God because they are vice-regents. And again, that's not a term we use very often. But it might be like the governor-general is like the queen. So the governor-general has the mandate from the queen, or now the king, to act on the king's behalf in Canada. And so God created humanity as the vice-regents with a mandate to take care of the world for God. And then in Genesis 1, if you've been to any of David's classes on Genesis or creation, is a temple image. And so it's an image of God creating the world as a temple and putting humanity in the temple to be like a statue, to represent God, to look like God. So when you look at people, there's something about people that demonstrates something about God okay so again these, this image of God is shared by men and women it, there's nothing in the scriptures that indicate that men are more in the image of God than women we are both in the image of God and in Genesis 1 both male and female were given the same mandate the mandate is to rule creation to relate to one another and then to create other human beings and so, again, this mandate, it wasn't like women were given the creation mandate and men were given the mandate to rule. Both men and women together were, were vice-regents, were put in charge of taking care of the earth for God. Okay? So we start at the beginning, and there's nothing in Genesis 1 that you can find that's patriarchal or preferences men. Okay? So let's move to Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 is the place where people start to say, oh, there is a preference for men in the scripture. So we're going to look a little bit more at Genesis 2. So some of the things that will help us understand Genesis 2 are helping understanding some Hebrew words, like Adam and helper and woman, and then understanding the connections that Genesis 2 talks about between humanity and the earth and male and female. So I'm going to use a little bit of Hebrew in here just because it helps but I think you'll understand it's pretty simple so in Genesis 2 7 it says the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and the word for Adam and oh, sometimes these get twisted so sorry my Hebrew is backwards and my English is forwards and they twisted so the one on the right is Adam it means the man the one on the left is Adama, and it means the earth the dust of the earth the earth so in Genesis uh, 2, you can hear wordplay. The Adam comes from the Adama. And in English, you can hear this too. The earthling comes from the earth, the human from the humus, the groundling from the ground. So God creates this earth creature, the Adam. And then the Adam, or Adam as we would call him in English, um, is... is it, is given the mandate, again, to care for the garden. He's to serve and care for the garden that he creates. And he, he is taking care of the garden and, and the plants come from the Adama, if you read the text. The water comes from the Adama. And then God be, God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So this is the first time there's something wrong in creation. The man is lonely. He's alone. There's a problem. Um, And so God solves this problem by saying he is going to make this helper suitable to him. Now, the English word helper is is a diminutive, right? Like if you hire someone who helps you take care of your house or a helper might be, you call your kid, you know, mommy's little helper. We think of a helper as someone less than. But in Hebrew, the word for helper is more like a rescuer. And so, Ezer is the word. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. It's used two times in this story in Genesis. It's used three times for powerful nations coming to help Israel. And it's used 16 times for God coming to help humanity. So some of you will know Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills, and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So this word helper, when we read it in English, we think that the woman is less than the man. But actually what this word is saying is that the man is alone and he needs someone to come and rescue him, someone to save him. And so God is going to bring someone to rescue him from his aloneness. Now it has a preposition as well, go, and this means like or corresponding to. So the man... God is going to find a helper for this man who is like or corresponding to him. She won't be above him. She won't be below him. She'll be from his side. And so the quest begins in Genesis 2, where God is starts to create the animals. And he brings the animals to Adam. And Adam says, you know, you're a gopher. I'm a man. You're not like me. You're a squirrel. I'm a man. You're not like me. And no suitable helper is found. So Adam puts... So God puts Adam into a deep sleep, semi-comatose. Adam has nothing to do with the next part, which you'll read. Some people misinterpret that at other points. And then God creates the woman from the side of Adam. And then we find Adam now sees the helper, this rescuer, and he says, this is the first song of scripture. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she come, she is taken out of man. And the Hebrew word switch here, and it's ish for man, isha for woman. I am ish, you are isha. You are like me. You are this helper corresponding to me. And you can see that in the names. So just like the Adam came from the Adama, the isha comes from the ish. The man is not inferior to the earth from which he came, the woman is not inferior to the man from which she came. That God draws the man from the earth because he is to take care of the earth and to serve it and to till it and the woman is drawn from the man because she's going to rescue the man from his aloneness and so what we see in genesis 2 is this connection and the intimacy the man comes from the earth to care from the earth the streams the plants the animals come from the earth but the woman comes from the man and this shows their intimate connection in a way that's different than everything else that's created And so at the end of Genesis 2, we see this relationship between God and the man and the woman. So God is the one, the creator. Man and woman are go. They are like or corresponding to you. They're not the same, but they they, um, connect together to care for each other and for the earth. So we kind of end Genesis 2 in a pretty similar way to we end Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 3, as you all know, things go very wrong. (laughs) So again, this connection between humanity and the earth, between humanity and each other, is broken. And so in Genesis 3, we have the serpent coming, Um, the serpent tricks, the, the man and woman are together, the serpent addresses both of them, can I eat from the garden? The woman answers, she gives some of the fruit to the man who's with her, they eat it, they recognize they're naked, they cover themselves up, God comes along, the man says, the God says, you know, why did you eat, Adam? And he's like, You the woman you put here with me, she gave me some, and so we can begin to see this, this break in relationship. Um, And then God curses two things. He curses the earth and he curses the snake. He doesn't curse the man and woman, but he tells them the consequences of their sin. And the consequences for the man are that he will fight with the earth so that the earth will produce food for him and and instead of the earth producing this amazing food it's going to be producing thorns and thistles so the relationship between the man and the earth is broken and then the relationship between the man and the woman is broken and it says that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her and so this is a complete change in their relationship there's a breaking of this relationship between the man and the woman and the woman the, and the, and the man and the earth and the relationship with God is cut off and the man overrules the woman. This is not how God created the relationship to be but this is what happens um, as a result of man and woman sinning. And so the rest of scripture describes what happens when things go very wrong. So you will see that people do terrible things to each other throughout Scripture, and this includes murder, rape, and exploitation of women. The Bible describes it, especially the Old Testament, in very graphic detail, but the Bible does not endorse it. The Bible does not support it. Every time polygamy is mentioned, the narrator will critique it. We will see that man, this relationship that God intended, one man, one woman in connection, is what God intended. And when a man takes several wives or a thousand like Solomon, problems will result. So again, the scriptures don't endorse the mistreatment of women, but they describe it. And I think in many ways, when we read something like the rape of Tamar or the mistreatment of Bathsheba and Uriah, the Bible tells these stories because it's reminding us, like, we, I want you to see what my people can do, and I don't want you to do it. And so again the Bible gives us these warnings of things that hurt and harm one another and so um, we can see from these creation stories that patriarchy and misogyny are not built into creation but that they're a result of sin from humanity turning away from God okay so that's where we get in creation in the fall and then I'm just going to talk a little bit about God and the image of God and so the, um, the question is, is God male? And so some of you in your, in your answers said, yes, I think that's a problem with Christianity. God is male. And um, many feminists have thought that's a problem, too. So Mary Daly wrote a book called Beyond the God the Father, and she said, if God is male, then male is God a very famous quote. When my um, two boys got to about two years old, maybe two and a half, both of them looked at me and one of them said, Mama, God is a man. And then my other little boy said to me, Mama, God is a he. And I thought, well, that was so interesting that at that age, they began to think if God is male, <laughs> male is God. They saw their connection to God. But neither of my girls said that to me. Neither of them said, Mama, God is like me they felt like God was completely other than them. And I thought that was very interesting because they grew up in my home and I tried to talk about God in expansive terms. And yet, somehow through church, they'd picked up this idea. So let's look at the scriptures. Is, is the Christian God a male God? so how do the scriptures refer to god so first of all scriptures refer to god many times in non-gendered designations so god the helper god the provider god i am god the almighty the deliverer the rock the fortress the alpha and omega the word the healer the god who sees these are non-gendered terms for god god also um, the scriptures also use male societal roles to describe god so god is a shepherd God is a warrior. God is a father. God is the king, the Lord, a landlord, a husband, and many, many more uh, male societal roles. And then the scriptures also use feminine images to describe God. So God is a mother bear, a mother eagle, a breastfeeding mother, a midwife, a baker woman, a mother hen, a homemaker, a woman in labor, a mistress, a womb holder, one who gives birth to the church, lady wisdom, And it's interesting because I grew up you know in the church and I actually never heard any of these feminine images of God so an interesting one the woman in labor it's found in Isaiah and so it's this picture of God um, as a warrior so you start reading it's Isaiah 47 and it says you know God is like a warrior you know he comes into battle and then the image switches and it says God is like a woman in labor who shouts And so, again, if you've ever had a baby, you can picture God giving birth (laughs) to Israel and the agony of it. And so that's an image that is used in the scripture for God. If you read uh, Job, you can see, again, some of those birthing images used for God um, in the Old Testament, and maybe they make us uncomfortable. Maybe a mother bear feels a little more comfortable. You can imagine a mother bear if you're ever out in the woods and you're threatening her young. That's the image we feel comfortable with. Jesus, of course, described himself as a, as a, a mother hen wanting to gather Jerusalem under swing. So these are some of the images um, that the scriptures use. And so that quote we read from Daphne Hansen, she got it wrong. She said that the Bible only refers to God in male terms, but that's not true. There's many non-gender terms and some feminine images used to describe God. And in Deuteronomy 4.15, Moses says this. He says, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. And so I think this Deuteronomy scripture reminds us that God is not like us. We can't make God in the image of a man. That is not who God is. That like God We are in God's image. And again, we are in God's image, male and female together, but that doesn't mean God is human. God is not like us. And the Westminster Confession of Faith from the 17th century says this, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body or parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. So again, God does not have a body. Um, And then finally, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, God is neither man nor woman. He is God. So again, I think that's really important um, when we talk about God that we make sure we use comprehensive images of God to help us understand God because God is much bigger than um, a, a warrior or a shepherd or a Lord. God has many, many um, ways of seeing or describing God. Now, the the, the New Testament and Jesus in particular primarily use the term Father for God. The Old Testament almost never uses the term Father for God. You will almost never find that. One of the reasons um, that people believe that is because there there were pagan deities that were mother and father. And so Israel very much stayed away from those terms because of the fertility cults and so they didn't use them. But when Jesus came, he used Father. And in doing that, he was stressing the, his closeness to God, his connection to God, his, and God's love for humanity, his bond with them. And so he uses this example, you know, when, when your child asks for a piece of bread, does he give you a snake? And you're like, no, no good father would do that, right? And so we're trying to understand what God is like. Um, and, he got, and Jesus even uses the term Abba, which is Daddy, the sense of closeness and connection. Another primary image that's used of God in relationship in the scriptures is husband. Again, God is faithful faithful and he's loving and forgiving. And Jesus picked up on this metaphor in Luke 5.34 and um, John the Baptist used it. It came up again with Paul in Ephesians 5. So there's this sense of God as husband, the loyal one, the one who stays with us, who does not abandon us. Now... um, Okay, so let's move on and look at some of the Gospels and um, some of the New Testament. So one of the Gospels that's the most interesting to look at when it comes to uh, Jesus' relationship with women is Luke. And so Luke does an amazing job of capturing Jesus' attention to women, his connection with women. And so often what Luke does, will he'll pair a male and a female together. So when we have the angel Gabriel coming in Luke 1, he shows up to Zachariah and he shows up to Mary. Zachariah is not faithful and is silenced and Mary responds in a faithful way to God. I'm your ser- servant, I will do whatever you want. When, Anna, when the, Jesus goes to the temple to be dedicated, there's Anna and Simeon. Um, when he talks about faithfulness amongst the Gentiles in Luke 4, he uses the example of Naaman, the one who came and got washed in the river, and then also uses the example of the widow of is it Zarephath. Yeah. So these, this two faithful non-Israelites. When he talks about parables, he he gives parables that that again use God. Uh, if you look at Luke 15, God is love is like. Um, a shepherd who goes out and looks for the lost sheep God's love for sinners is like a woman who goes and looks for a lost coin in Luke 18 he uses the parable of the persistent widow to describe faithful prayer and then alongside a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector and their prayer and so throughout the gospels Jesus the gospel of Luke Jesus continues to Address women in a way that they would understand uh, Roles that they would understand and he describes again like god is like a woman looking for a lost coin So I always laugh because my mother-in-law lives with us and she's the best sweeper ever So whenever we lose anything we just call my mother-in-law and she sweeps and digs And I imagine that god is like my mother-in-law, you know, come on. Help me. I'm in trouble and she comes I'm um, in uh, Luke 15, um, it describes Jesus fo- or Luke 8 it describes Jesus' followers and it says that the disciples were with him and a number of women. And then it lists the women and it says that the women financially provided for him. How scandalous. He didn't follow the Billy Graham rule, right? There was these women traveling with him, sleeping out at night with him, providing financially for him. Um, when Jesus heals again in Luke, he'll heal. A woman, and then a man. In Luke, he heals um, the woman who's um, bent. He, the woman who's bleeding. Um, he heals a man with a demon. Then he heals the synagogue ruler's daughter. So he's he's paying attention to women, women who are hurting. He's present to them. He elevates women as moral examples. So when a in Luke seven, a woman comes to him. She it says she was a sinful woman. Perhaps she was a prostituted woman. She comes and she's weeping. Her feet, uh, she her tears go on his feet, and then she wipes them with her hair and anoints him. And the Pharisees are like horrified. How do you let this sinful woman touch you? And then Jesus uses her as an example of faithfulness um, against these men who were supposed to be religious leaders. Um, He he. When we look at Jesus, the last people at the cross in Luke are women. The first people at the resurrection are women. They are the ones who stay faithful to Jesus when his disciples um, leave. So I think this cartoon is kind of funny. So. So, ladies, thanks for being the first ones to witness and report the resurrection, and we'll take it from here. <laughs> so, 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 uh, but throughout the Gospels, we'll see Jesus doing this. So, just a few examples in John. We have the Samaritan woman, where Jesus leaves again the people of Israel. He goes out. He meets this woman. He takes her seriously. He answers her questions, and he sends her out as one of his the first people in Luke or in John to share the gospel. We have Jesus with the woman caught in adultery in John 8. And again, his care for her and his recognition of the bad place that men have put her in is very clear. He has this amazing conversation with Mary and Martha, and Mary recognizes him as the resurrection and the life, and she recognizes that he is the Lord. In In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts last on men. Now, how many women have heard, if you just dress properly, men won't lust after you? Jesus, <laughs> Noah's going to pop their hand, but that's this thing going around. But Jesus didn't say to men, women dress properly. He said to men, if you look at a woman with lust, you know, you should gouge your eye out. Like Jesus held men responsible for lust, not women. He protected women from unwanted divorces in Matthew 19. So the Pharisees were having an argument, can a man just divorce a woman for any reason? And Jesus is like, no, the two have become one. And so there were many women like the Samaritan woman who'd been cast off and powerless and poor because men hadn't lived up to their commitments. And again, in in Matthew 9, he talks about the faith of this woman with the menstrual bleed, which again would be very shocking to the men around these are pretty radical ways that Jesus interacted and treated women in a culture that didn't really value women's spirituality or women. So even if you think of the story of Mary and Martha, when Mary was, um, in the, when Mary and Martha um, were preparing to have Jesus in their home, um, you know, Martha's cooking and working hard, and Mary, then it says that Mary sat at Jesus' feet. That's what a disciple does. So Mary acted like a disciple. Martha was a lovely host. But it's not, like, it's not like you hear, oh, this contemplative woman versus an active woman. It's actually a woman choosing to be a disciple of Jesus. And he said, Mary has chosen the better way. It's better to be a disciple than to follow traditional woman's roles. That's what Jesus said. And he said that uh, throughout the gospel. So how, so how does this look when it comes to the New Testament, for the rest of the New Testament? And one of the things that's really interesting is that baptism in the New Testament replaces circumcision as a sign of the people of God. And if you think of circumcision, obviously only men could be circumcised, so the women didn't really have a sign that they were one of the people of God. But as it switches after Jesus is resurrected, everyone is baptized, and we all become in Christ through this sign we can all participate in. Throughout the... Um, Throughout the uh, Acts and the Epistles, we see women leading in the churches, women are leading house churches, like Lydia has a church in her home. In Romans 16, Paul has a long list of people who are leaders in the church, and he a third of them are women. He talks about Tryphena and Tryphosa. He mentions two women that were likely slaves. Wow, what kind of faith actually treated slave women as partners in Christ? Uh, he talks about Phoebe, a wealthy woman, who's a deacon in the church. And Phoebe financially supported him. She was one of his patrons. He talks about Junia, who was a, an apostle, who was also imprisoned with him. Again, willing to suffer for Christ. He also talks about Priscilla, who if we read about Priscilla in Acts, we'll see that she teaches, and often her name is listed before her husband, which again is very unusual and likely means she was more prominent um, than him. In Philippians. We see Paul in Philippians who are addressing two women, Yodi and Syntyche. They're leaders in the church and they're fighting. And he's like, you guys, you're wrecking the church. Come on. And so again, he treats them like leaders. And he says, let's let's deal with this properly. So we can see Paul, again, is is um, treating women and dealing with women as co-workers in Christ with him. And, and probably... Um, David will talk about this later, but we'll see even later women beginning to be martyred alongside men, which meant they were a threat. Um, So there's this, in the New Testament, we see this radical democratizing, first by the spirit. So the spirit gives gifts, not according to gender, not according to social status. Slaves get gifts. um, Women get gifts. The Spirit gives gifts to all. This was prophesied by Joel in Joel two twenty eight that even slave girls would be prophesying, and it came to pass. And they overturned the apostle Paul overturned an incredible prejudice in the Greco Roman world. It was a prejudice for free males, free free citizens against um, slaves, against foreigners, against um, Women And so he says in Christ you are all children of God through faith for all of you were baptized into Christ and have closed yourself with Christ There's neither Jew nor Gentile Neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female for you are all one in Christ That was Unthinkable in the Greco-Roman world to say that there was democracy that there was equality and this idea spread from Christians and, and turned the world upside down. And David will talk a bit more about that um, coming up. Now, I don't have time to talk in detail about this, but there are uh, at least four passages in the New Testament that appear to limit women in ministry. And so these four passages, I'm happy to talk to you about at a different time, but we don't have time tonight. How are we doing for time? So you can ask me questions. But I will talk a little bit about Ephesians 5. So 1 Corinthians 11 says that the head of every man is Christ. The head of Christ is God and the head of the woman is a man. And again, and so when women pray and prophesy in church, they should cover their head. Now I want to say that that is a really difficult passage to interpret. (laughs) So it even says women should cover their head because of the angels you're like, what does that mean? Nobody even knows what that means. Nobody even knows what the term covered their heads means. Does it mean that's their hair? Or does it mean a veil? Because it's a word nowhere else used in the New Testament. So it's a very difficult passage to translate. Um, And again, lots of people have spent lots of time and nobody actually can say this is what it means. So That doesn't mean we don't listen to it, but I would take from 1 Corinthians 11 that men and women are not the same, that men and women should dress appropriately in their culture. And then it says at the end, nevertheless, in Christ, man comes from woman and woman comes from man. And so again, referring back to Genesis 2, where where the woman came from the man, and then now men come from women because we give birth to them. And so there's, again, this interconnectedness in Christ between men and women. 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, in there, Paul commands women to be silent in church. And again, what does that mean when he's just given them pro- permission to pray and prophesy in church three chapters before? It's really hard to understand. Again, people read it and have lots of different ideas. Um, whether whether they were women were shouting back and forth across and being disruptive. Um, whether whether um, yeah, lots of different ideas, but nobody really knows what that means. First Timothy two again is is a pastoral epistle. Specific instruction. It gives instruction uh, for men to raise up holy hands in prayer and women to learn with silence and submission. Uh, again, that was the proper way to learn in in Greek culture. So he was actually asking women to learn. Um, and then he said, "Women, do, I do not give women permission to." to teach or have authority, but the word authority is a word that's not used anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. It means to domineer, and uh, it's not the usual word that Paul used for authority. So again, that leads to some confusion. What was Paul actually saying? Was he saying women should learn first, or... So again, it's a very difficult passage, and I don't have time to spend tonight to explain it. Um, And again, I don't know the proper interpretation of it, because nobody does. Um, So it's interesting that the three passages that seem to limit women all use words that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. They're not clear. They're all unclear. It's very difficult to interpret them. Um, So that's quite interesting. And then finally, Ephesians 5 is a metaphor um, for Christ's love for the church. And in this Ephesians 5, men are called to love their wives, not to lead their wives. So I think that's an important distinction. It's not focused on gender roles or finances or who comes first. It's really calling both men and women to live with Christ's attitude of servanthood and submission, giving up. So Christ is the model of one who gives up his life for the other. And that's how um, the New Testament sees men's relationship with women and women's relationship with men. Self-giving love, the model of Christ dying um, to care for the other. And the, this love of Christ will ultimately be fulfilled um, when Jesus returns. So we, so again, that's just an overview of the scriptures really quickly. And uh, we are going to move on to church history. i just going to exit that, so you can
1: see, Here we go. Well, and one of, the things, um, one of the things we can do, Marty and I have actually given a talk, I mean, she's talking about those, those problematic verses, and they are very difficult verses. Um, uh, most biblical scholars uh, really struggle with them, but I think there's some ways to look at them. And so, one of the things that Marty and I did once is that we spoke to our staff, and we walked through a biblical picture of um, of the relationship between men and women on egalitarianism, and we and we actually unpacked those verses, and we did a little more uh, detail. And so, that's something that I think Marty and I will probably think we're thinking about recording, maybe recording a, a talk where we can dive into those passages because the First Timothy uh, two is a really interesting passage and i think there's some there are some uh, w- ways that um that are very helpful to uh, to, to read that passage it's, it's it's an easy passage to get confused in um, i'm just going to speak briefly on church history and <laughs> briefly i love talking about church history but i'll be brief um and some of you may be familiar with some of the things i'm going to be saying uh, because you've taken my church history class before um, or you've taken a class here where i walk through um, um, how the early church began but one of the big questions to ask just from a historical perspective is why did the early church grow there's no reason why the early church should have grown and when I'm talking about the early church I'm talking about you know the early second century the early 100s why did the church grow in a Roman Empire what is it about the, about the church that drew people um, to want to actually put their life at stake and convert to follow jesus uh, where it it would um, certainly cost you your life well one of the one of the reasons why the church grew is that the church had a very interesting understanding about what it means to be human it had a vision for humanness that stood out in the greco-roman world and one of the things that take that you need to take into consideration when you're looking at the context in which the church began to grow is is the role of women in the Greco-Roman world. And the role of women in the Greco-Roman world was not a very prominent, (laughs) they didn't have a very prominent role. One of the reasons for this is that there weren't very many women. Um, Most studies say that in the, by about the second century, the ratio of men to women was about 140 males to 100 females. Now that is huge. Uh, I'm not sure what China is right now. I think China is like maybe 120 to 100, and that's a major social issue in China. So we're talking in the Roman Empire, um, 140 men to 100 women. So there are not a lot of women. Most households would have lots of sons and very few daughters, one, maybe two. Um, It was legal in the Roman Empire if you had a baby girl to discard her. just let her die Um, you could do that for a baby boy but there had to be a deformity and so i often quote this It's, it's it's a it's a it's a weird letter but it's a short letter from this guy named hilarion to his pregnant wife alice and this is what he says and it's a beautiful letter except for one part he says know that i'm still in alexandria And do not worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and I beg you to take good care of our baby son. As soon as I receive payment, I'll send money to you. If you're delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Okay, it's a pretty touching letter except for that one little part, right? Um, But that was the understanding and so abortion and forced abortion was a major cause of death among women in the Roman Empire. There's archaeological uh, digs and we've talked about this where sewers, sewers were clogged with the skeletons of baby girls. Um, same with rubbish uh, dumps. Um, the other thing that happens in any culture, not just in the Roman Empire, but when, when men outnumber women, women become scarce goods. And when women are perceived as scarce goods, they're objectified and used for, for, as, as sexual objects. And so any country where there's more men than women, women are denigrated. Any country, just historically, where there's more women than men, there's greater freedom. This is just like a sociological, um, Uh, phenomenon throughout history and in the christian context what drew women to christianity well one of the things that drew women to christianity in the early church um, was that the church prohibited gender selection um, infanticide and abortion they said you can't discard a baby girl why because she's made in the image of god and has dignity and value and not just our baby girls and the church as many of you know would often go from place to place to place picking up discarded girls and raising them as Christians and so no wonder the Christian um, Christianity was such good news for women um, the other thing about um, in the early church is that uh, girls were given in marriage later the average age for a, um, a, a Roman girl to be given in marriage was how old 12, 12 yeah 11 or 12 and for Christian girls, 16. 16 or 17. Yeah, now think of the reproductive capacity of an 11-year-old and a 17-year-old. Very different. A lot of, you know, and, and 16 or 17 was, you know, what was a marrying age in, in the first century. Um, women actually had a say who they're going to marry. It wasn't just up to the father of the household. The w- women had a, had a say over who they're going to marry. Um, Christians condemned divorce, incest. Abortion, uh, marriage infidelity, polygamy, remarriage was even discouraged. And Christians said, look, we pri- we- chastity matters. You shouldn't be sleeping around before you get married. And they applied that to men as well as women. And the men are like, wait, 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 wait. That's not, you know, I get that for the women, but not for us. No, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you had to be chaste before you got married. Which was, you have to under, in the Greco Roman world, that's, that's crazy thinking. But it was a radically different way of thinking that was being put forward. As Marty uh, intimated, women held high offices within the church. A number of women ministers were martyred. Uh, if you read the story of. Um, uh, Perpetua and Felicitas is, is, is one, of, I, I read it if you took my course, it's, it's a powerful story of, of martyrdom, but women also just willing to uh, follow Jesus right into the arena where they were going to die. Jesus and Paul both spoke out for women, we talked about that, uh, but I, I love what Rick Watts says, he's a New Testament scholar, he says, let us be clear, no movement on earth has been as supportive of women as has Christianity. And. Um, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't realize, that wherever Christianity has grown and flourished, democracy has. And in fact, yeah, so modern democracy is, is rooted within a Christian worldview, we can't get into that, but this is huge. And so women have played a very key role in the church not just in the early church but the entire missionary movement of the 19th century was spearheaded by women and some of the 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 key figures of the 19th century that led to you know um the growth of the church around the world were led by by women like uh, Phoebe Palmer uh Hannah Whittle Smith uh, even in the 18th century like Hannah Moore Um, And there's international, and and you'll you'll talk about that in in India, but a a woman named Pandita Ramadai was a very important missionary evangelist that led to the conversion of a huge area of, of India. And so women throughout church history have played very, very important roles. But I would say this, that women have even a stronger role and a more prominent role and a more transformative role globally since the rise of evangelicalism in the 18th century, which again, you would never hear anybody saying anything positive anywhere about evangelicalism. But this movement, which emerges in the 18th century, had a huge impact on not only global missions, but it actually had a huge impact on women getting the vote. If you trace the, suffrages, the suffrage movement, it goes back to evangelical women. Anyhow, I could go on and on. But I won't. <laughs> and so I'm going <laughs> to hand things back to Marty.
0: One of the significant areas that um, Christian missionaries had, um, particularly in India, was education. And so from the 17- in 1707, the first girls' school started in India um, by a, a Protestant missionary named Bartolomeus Zingngemboog not an easy name to pronounce and it was the one of the focuses of protestant missions in india was to free women from the oppression and the discrimination that they saw when they arrived um and so there was there were single women missionaries went they started schools for girls um there was a, a Hannah Marsham started a, a school in Bengal. Marianne Cook, in 1821, started education for girls in Calcutta, and so um, this was what began the education of women in India. And then the government and other organizations picked up on it afterwards and began to educate women. Um, but since the 1870s in India, a large number of schools and colleges for women were established by by evangelical missionaries, and uh, some of the early first graduates of universities in India were products of these Christian colleges, and this was, again, something that other agencies and the government eventually picked up on, but was started by Christians. And in China, something very similar happened. Um, Again, in Confucianism, women were not educated, they were not treated with very much respect, And so by the 1860s, as Christians moved into China, these mission agencies began to offer education for Chinese women. And um, they went on to teach them literacy, doctrine, hymn singing, explaining the scriptures. And then these Chinese women began to share the gospel um, and spread Christianity around China. In 1910, they estimate... That Bible women, these Chinese Bible women would be teaching up to three thousand women each month in reading and and um teaching them how to read for themselves. And so this there was a huge impact of, of Christian missionaries in China on the experience of women and their education. And um even when in as we move into the communist era in the nineteen fifties and sixties, Christian and China The male pastors were thrown into prison and the women began to lead and they they led the house churches they shared their faith with the next generation. Um, They demonstrated the faithfulness of Christ in the house church movement and women rose to really powerful leaders of these church networks one woman. Mama K smuggled millions of Bibles um, into China and was a leader in the church. Again, you can look at each country where Christianity went, particularly Protestant missionaries, and see that, that there was a place and a learning and a change for women in those areas. So history, I think, demonstrates what David said. What did you say that um, where Christianity went, where Rick Watts said women were given education, respect, and freedom, uh, that mantra that Paul, Paul said in Christ, there is no male or female, that we are all one and together. And it's interesting that up until... Probably from the time evangelicalism really exploded in the 19th century, and in, uh, women were leaders in the church. Women were church planners in BC, our denomination. Many of the churches were planted by women. Bible women. There'd be maybe two of them in a car. One of the women would preach. One of the women would teach Sunday school, and that's how many of our denomination's churches were established. Um, but as that began to happen. Um, there was a bit of a backlash at the end of the Second World War. And so when men came back from the war, they'd lost their place when we were out working. And they, it seemed that they kind of pushed women backwards at, in the, at the beginning of the 1950s, which was interesting. And then it sort of became Christianized. Well, women don't lead in the church, even though they had been leading. And so one uh, missionary I read went on the field in the 50s, came home in the 70s, and was shocked to sh- see the shift in the church where women were really pushed backwards. Um, but Despite that the research still shows that in um, com- That Christian women and I'm going to just share this on my screen again. Let's see if I can get back back there Okay, so Here we are Yeah, the Christian women um, There's 53% of the church is female in North America 46% male, which is quite a big difference um, that women, 50, 61% of Christian women say they pray daily, 51% of men say they pray daily, uh, and that religion, um, uh, 68% of women say religion is important in their lives compared to 61% of men. So it's interesting, in, in North America, it seems like, again, uh, women are really committed to the church, really involved. Really engaged, and there's a book called "Holding Up Half the Sky." It's a fairly new book by Graham Joseph Hill, but he says that over two thirds of the world's missionaries are women. Fifty-three percent of the world's Christian Christians are women, which we see in North America as well. Christians are women are likely more uh, likely to participate in worship than men. They pray more than men. Again, so we see in Africa, eighty percent of those who participate in church services are women. In South America, Pentecostal women have championed women's rights and um, made some really great strides in places in South America. Even in in the Middle East, women now are being trained in seminaries. And in our denomination in Hong Kong, women were the first to be ordained, which is really interesting. And so women, um, Chinese women in Hong Kong have really strong leadership in the church. So I work with some women um yeah regent college are coming to do seminary work from hong kong and yeah they're really surprised to see where we're at uh, in terms of women in leadership in bc compared to what they see in hong kong so it's interesting but i think that's probably a result of women going over as missionaries providing education and modeling um, leadership in the church Um, okay so I think one of the things I want to just briefly talk about is where we're heading, and where where we're heading. Um, I believe we're living in this time that I'd say is the now, but not yet. And so we see the church pressing forward, trying to establish the kingdom of God, but still influenced by our culture. And so again. Um, God is calling us to live in this way where we find our identity in God, where men and women work side by side and support one another. But we also see that patriarchy and misogyny are present in our culture, in our world, and that impacts the church. And I think one day when Jesus returns, those things will not be true anymore. That I think when Jesus returns, um, patriarchy will be done away with, misogyny will be done away with we will live truly as children of God, submitted to God, and honoring and loving one another. So I look forward to that day for sure. Um, but there's some things that I put in your notes that I want to say for my final thoughts. So patriarchy and misogyny do exist. They sometimes thrive within Christianity, which is disappointing. But Christianity honors women. We, it honors women because women are created in the image of God. They are created as vice-regents of God's creation. They're visible reminders of who God is. In Christ, women are valued as co-heirs with Christ. Jesus treated women with respect. He called them, he taught them, he healed them, he received them and cared for them. He addressed issues of injustice for women. um, And the women stayed with him through the crucifixion. They were first to witness his resurrection and receive the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. And when in Christ women's status is equal with men, they're baptized into Christ, they receive the gifts of the Spirit as men receive them, gifts of teaching, preaching, leadership, administration. These gifts are given to them for the building up of the body of Christ. And again, not to give them power, but power in the Christian worldview is to serve and care for one another. And history has demonstrated that women can flourish in Christian community. And so I do not believe... That Christianity, at its best, denigrates women. I think, yeah, that we, uh, yeah, at its best, women flourish um, in the Christian world. Okay, sure. Yeah, we can move into a time of questions. So the first question, if you're online, is what is the Alliance position on women? So interestingly enough, um, when I was first an Alliance pastor, women were we're allowed to be pastors. We could marry, we could bury, baptize, we could preach, but we couldn't be ordained. And then over the last, um, I guess, 10 years now, women in the Alliance have been ordained. And so we, we, as the Alliance, recognize ordination not as something that confers authority, but ordination is something that recognizes your gifting call. So men are ordained to say, hey David, you're a pastor, you have the gifts of the spirit to lead the church and then they would say that for women too so again ordination doesn't give me authority to do those things but it recognizes that god has gifted me um so the alliance has two positions they hold intention so uh, alliance some alliance churches would support the leadership of women women can be elders women can um, be pastors they can preach um, teach and then some Alliance churches would, would have what they would call a complementarian position, where they would be more focused on roles. So man's role is to lead, and women's role is to follow. So we have both kinds of churches in our denomination. We, we say this is not a central issue um, that we can get along, even if we have a different perspective on that. So I'd say right now, probably over 50% of Alliance churches would support the leadership of women and women. A slightly less than 50% would say no men should lead in church. So in Canada, we would allow for women's ordination. In the US, they will not. In Hong Kong, they do. So again, it really depends on the country. Each country decides for themselves. So Brenda is a pastor in Mexico. So women can be pastors in Mexico, but they can't be ordained in Mexico either. So, David, would you like to speak to that? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, <is> my fault? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to misrepresent the position, but they would probably... So, I think probably he, churches that are egalitarian or believe in the equality of men and women... Yeah, okay, so the question is, why do, what is the rationale why some churches don't allow women in leadership? So some churches would prioritize those difficult passages, so 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 2 Timothy 2, and say those are instructions to the church for all time that women limit women. The other churches would prioritize uh, the gifts of the Spirit being given to everyone, uh, Galatians 2, the creation story, um, and uh, so they would say that those passages are, well, again, we haven't talked about what they mean, but they would they ha- would say that they're not as priority, they're less clear, and we're going to focus on what's clear.
1: Well, and, 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 and it's not um, egalitarian or completely. Yes, there's you know, people in there, the middle. There, there's different, so there are some churches that would say, you know what, we think that elders need to be men, but, um, or need to be male, but uh, the, the gifting and the calling is upon all people. And so you'd have women pastors, pastors yeah. but the eldership, so the authority, the ultimate authority of the church would still be male. And then sometimes it's, it's just male across the board.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's different like gradations of yeah. how strongly people hold on to those perspectives. Yeah. But in the denomination, basically all leadership positions are open to men and women. Um, in denominational positions, but it's not usual for women to hold any of them. So that they could hold them, but they don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, so it's all. Yeah, I mean, most Alliance churches would be pretty egalitarian in Canada.
0: Probably, I would say most would be like if if you like the extreme end where women can't do anything, there would be very few of those churches, and then there would be gradations up to. Women can be lead pastors, and there are some churches with women as lead pastors.
1: What would be the ratio of female
0: pastors? Yeah, so that's a good question, and so I actually know that because I'm I'm serving on a a group called the Women in Leadership Collective that's looking at that issue in our denomination. So I I think there's probably, in terms of leadership roles, there's one woman for every twenty men who are in leadership roles, um, but in terms of pastors, uh, there's probably one woman for every four men. Yeah, so a lot of women serve in churches that are conservative. They would ch- serve as children's pastors or women's <clears throat> pastors, um, but in yeah, so that I don't would know. be I yeah. Know. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: in some ways, obviously are no. all the
0: same general things but are there specifically called to men mm. I'll repeat the question yeah so are men are there different are men called to different things than women um, in scripture and so again one thing I'd say if you look at Genesis 1 it doesn't appear in Genesis 1 that's the case so the creation mandate was given to men and women the dominion mandate was when you look at Jesus he doesn't distinguish and what some disciples are called to and what other disciples are called to so I would say that often those roles are culturally or um, cultural so for instance in hunter-gatherer cultures women will tend to have different roles than men so I think again it would some of I think that maybe how women do things and how men do things generally might be different so um, like there's one site so Christian um, sociologist that I like and she talks about men and women holding this tension where women are called pulled towards and men are pulled away and so this life-giving tension of connection and separation the genders contribute to each other so I think what I'd say is that it's not clear in scripture it doesn't define roles in such a way apart from culture Mm -hmm. so the roles seem to be very culturally connected so what life looked like for an ancient israelite woman would be different than what, li- what life looked like for lydia in a city selling purple mm.
1: the broader question and yeah. it would be interested to hear your perspective on this marty yeah and maybe the broader <laughs> question are there are there things about men um, that are distinct in terms of you know how we're wired from women like are are, are there are there uniquenesses or or and if so what what would those be
0: yeah and you've talked yeah. about this before, yeah so and it's super that. interesting right now in our culture obviously because our culture thinks that gender is changeable right where you can just like go no I actually am NOT a woman I'm a man so we live in a culture that would really downplay those it's interesting in 1970s and second wave feminism as it grew feminists were very strong like women are different than men We You know we are not the same and so again it's interesting to watch our culture have these different movements right and how how do we as christians respond and i think one thing i'd say is like um it's really important not to use gender stereotypes i think that diminishes people so if if there are women who maybe are more mechanical than than the average woman. You don't want them to feel like they're a man, right? <laughs> you must be a guy, you can fix a car. Or if there's an, a man who's an artist, you don't want him to feel like, oh, you like to dance, so you must be a woman. So I think as Christians, we need to be really careful about gender stereotyping. I, My opinion is like, I need to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, who have you made me to be and what have you called me to do? And so for me, I think that depends on our gifts sometimes, right? So if I am a, if I'm gifted to, as a, like one of the gifts in the New Testament is a gift of mercy, and so if, if I have a gift of mercy to care for people when they're sick, I could be male or female with that gift. I might do it a little differently, um, but I need to say, Jesus, what are you calling me to, and how do you, how can I use my gifts to serve you? So I think I, I think that, but it is a definite challenge in our culture with the breakdown of roles. I mean, again, I was a mom, I had four kids. I stayed home and looked after my kids for eight years. Like the first 10 years of my marriage, I was either pregnant or breastfeeding. I can't even remember those years. And that was really important for me. Like I wanted to, do that. I was so thankful I could stay home with my kids. And again, when my kids grew and my mother-in-law came and helped me, I had some more freedom to be more involved in ministry, which was a great blessing for me too. And I think we need to honor Women and honor what they are called to, and uh, if I, yeah, so I don't know how else to say that. Go ahead. No, no, that's good. Uh, I believe that Calvin and Luther
1: had probably a pretty negative opinion on this one. What was the opinion of the Wesley
0: brothers? On women?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so the Wesley brothers, I mean, in terms of public ministry were very affirming of women, uh, of women in particular. John, uh, John, um, he ordained women. Um, he, which in the 18th century is, it was just shocking, um, and he he uh, affirmed their calling and he affirmed their place and he also affirmed their authority within the church. Um, Charles was a little bit different. He wasn't quite. He's was probably a little more conservative than John. But John was, was, was fully there. Now, ironically for John, he, was, he had just horrible relationships. with, Like his, he had a horrible marriage. And, and Charles had a really good marriage. But at least from a public ministry, um, John was uh, affirming of, uh, of women. And so John and Charles Wesley, they are the founders of the Methodist movement. And the Methodist movement is kind of the was behind the holiness movement of which the Christian Missionary Alliance is kind of found within that stream and that's why women as Marty was pointing out early on in the alliance had a prominent role it could trace its lineage back to the Wesley brothers yeah mm-hmm. do you think
0: that there's anything that um, women in the church are doing to contribute to some of the negative Of women
1: in the church like, and if so like, how should we address that That's a great question. Yeah. Do you, are, want to you add that it? No, I think I it was mean, to you. I mean
0: it was interesting when I first became a Christian I would grow up do you want in, to the question? Oh yeah. yeah, are women doing anything to contribute to patriarchy in the church? So, when I first became a Christian I was I came out of the United Church and I didn't know a lot about Jesus like I knew a little bit. And when I came into the church I was really shocked at what i saw women doing and not doing and i that really was like oh jesus like what are you who are you calling me to be and i don't know if i can be like that and so i think one thing that maybe women were a product of their culture when i first became a christian in the 80s but i think again i saw women very focused on family and not necessarily uh, but there were some amazing women in my church who actually were involved in ministry and were serving and sharing their faith and so I think one thing women can do is actually use their gifts use the gifts that God has given you to serve wherever God calls you and so again if your gift is serving serve it's helping helping if it's administration administrate Um, so I think that in a sense um, if women are using their gifts they will be valued um, in the church Um, I think Again, um, obviously, we all have sin. So, gossiping, <laughs> tearing other people down, like that—that—that that, that minimizing of other women—that can be really destructive in a church. So, how do we build each other up and support each other? I think that's really key. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, some of the questions are about First Timothy two and First uh, Corinthians fourteen. So, we—so, we, as I say, I, I think Marty and I will, are planning to do a video on that, um, kind of like a. CA podcast or whatever. Um And so that, that will be coming. So I, I understand what one of you have uh, asked that question about that. Yes. Can you to go back to Ephesians 5? You touched on
0: it, but it is the wording. And I'm wondering your thoughts on the difference of wording where wives should submit to your husband and husband should love your wife. Yeah. yeah.
1: Repeat the question. Okay, so
0: Ephesians 5, why does it say wives should submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives? So first I want to say that that verb submit is actually not in the text. <laughs> so it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. So it actually is added in the English text for sense, which is super interesting. Um, but then it goes on to say wives submit to your husbands and everything a little bit later. Um, I yeah, I I think again all christians are su- called to submit to one another by submitting to put our priorities and our values um, Less and the other person's needs and priorities more so that's a general call to all christians to submit to one another Out of reverence for christ paul spends the most of that most of that text talking to husbands how to love your wife and I think I talked about this a little at alpha so Paul is writing what is called a household code and the Romans had household codes and in their codes they instructed um, the patrofamilius, the father of the house, in how to control his family, how to control his wife, his slaves and his children. So when the household codes are listed in scripture, you'll see that in Colossians and you'll see that in Ephesians, there's instructions to the wives, to the children and to the slaves. But what Paul does that's really unique is he actually addresses the household code to the wife, to the slave, and to the child. So he actually treats them like humans as opposed to just talking to the man, which was super revolutionary. And then the, in Roman household codes, the the core of the Roman f- idea was the family and the family had to stay structured in order to keep like the Roman empire running. And so that was why these husbands were instructed to like put everybody under them so that the Roman Household. And Paul flips it on its head and he actually gives instructions to the father about how to love his wife, how to not exasperate his children, mm-hmm. how to treat his slave mm-hmm. with respect, which was completely revolutionary in ancient, in ancient Rome. And so I think Paul's addressing to love your wife like Christ loved the church because that is so countercultural to the ancient world the idea that a husband would treat his wife like that would serve his wife, care for his wife, treat her like his own body, and then Paul is so excited about that, then he goes on to talk about how amazing Jesus is um, in doing that for us. And um, so that's how I would see it.
1: Well, and and I think you're absolutely right, and and it goes back to reading it within his context, because you have to understand, within the first century Greco-Roman world, the paterfamilias, the man of the household, he owned his children. He owned his daughters. Even when the daughters were married off, he still had control over them. He, uh, a slave in the Greco-Roman world was not a human being, but, a, 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 but was something that you owned. It was a thing. And when Paul talks about slaves and telling the masters, be kind to your slave, recognizing you both have the same master, he's humanizing them, which again in the Greco-Roman world was revolutionary. And in that passage, when he's addressing husbands and wives, and the fact that he spends so much time talking to the husband to love his wife, which, again, the paterfamilias demands obedience, uh, demands respect, um, and is in charge of his household to call the husband to love his wife, not just love his wife, but to love his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, in that first century context was completely revolutionary and we we we, we can't see we're, like we read that and we're like, "Huh, oh, how come she has to submit to her husband?" But no, within the context, it is unbelievably um, transformative, revolutionary what Paul is teaching in this. How do we
0: interpret that today in modern day Is the man the head of the household
1: and the wife Okay. Okay, so if I could defer, and the reason why I'm going to defer, not just to bring you back, Jessica, next week, but uh, um, but next week, we're talking about how can we read the Bible literally? I mean, do you read the Bible? Does Paul literally mean that you're supposed to submit, or is he meaning something else? So next week, we're gonna be talking about how to read the Bible, do we read the Bible literally? And Lauren, you're, you're gonna give me um, a warm-up on Sunday with ethos because we are going to be talking the, 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 about ethos. Is that okay? So, because that is connected to that question I, I of will, how we read can scripture. Can I say two
0: quick things? Yeah, One is, first of all, what does head mean? That's a question. If you read the French scriptures, they do not translate the Greek word kephali as head because head does not mean authority in French. So they, they won't translate it tet, they'll put authority in it because that's an interpretive question. So well, what does kephali mean in, to the ancient Greeks? And it doesn't usually mean leader. That's if you see how the Old Testament is translated into Greek, they will not use that word. So again, that's not what it means. It um, there, it's difficult to know how Paul uses it. He uses it in different ways in different contexts. Um, So that would be. But I think this passage is not at all about leading. There's nothing in the passage about leading. It's about serving. So if the husband is the head of the wife, he's the head of the wife as a servant. Yeah. That's kind of how I would say it in that passage the head servant. But we'll talk about that yeah. because I think yeah.
1: that it's, it's an important um yeah. passage to linger on. Okay, um I just want to be respectful of time. Um yeah. it's, of course, we all need our what time yeah. is that? <laughs> Um so let's uh take a moment and let's thank Marty for tonight. This is uh awesome. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to have uh Marty lead us in prayer just to close our time. Um but I just want to give a shout out. Some of you were asking about this class. You know me, I whenever I do a class, I always base it on some kind of book. So there's Rachel McLaughlin's uh, Confronting Christianity. It's actually the book that I'm basing this on. And I happen to bring a few extra copies in. If you want to buy a copy, they're not cheap because <laughs> they're hardcover and 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 because of supply chain issues. I don't know about the second one. But, um, but there's $30, so that's how much the book is um, if you want to get one afterwards. Okay, so do you want to? Pray, pray, and then I'll yeah. shut off the recording.
0: Yeah. yeah, so God, I do thank you um, for your scriptures. I thank you for what they teach us about what it means to be male and female and people who are in your image. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus' life and how he treated women, how he engaged women, and how he set off this revolution of this democratization, this uh, family that are one and equal and in Christ. So Jesus, we ask that as a church, we can live this out. We can love one another well and honor one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.